listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. Today, I will be talking about diabetic nephropathy. Actually, I'll be a bit more more specific. It's called diabetic kidney disease. So diabetic nephropathy is a diagnosis that can be only made with a biopsy of the kidney, which is done very rarely. So using diabetic nephropathy as a catch-all term for kidney disease in diabetics is incorrect, uh, something that I learned. It's much better to use the more inclusive term of diabetic kidney disease, which includes all the spectrum of different things that can go wrong with the kidney in diabetics. Now, a lot of things can go wrong, and there's a lot of different diseases that can they can affect the kidney when you're a diabetic, but the pathophysiology is very similar. And I think I want to spend a bit of time talking about the physiology of the kidney and the pathophysiology of the diabetic kidney disease, because if you understand that, it's really easy to understand the treatments and remember the treatments for this condition. So what happens in diabetes that seems to, that we think triggers the cascade of kidney problems is glucose increases in the blood. And if you remember, again, increased glucose makes the blood more concentrated, like it increases the osmolarity of the blood. This leads to the body thinking that you're dehydrated. That is why, ultimately, people who are diabetic are thirsty all the time and drink a lot of water, because the body thinks it's dehydrated. It can't really figure out why the osmolarity is high. Usually it's high because the sodium is high, but not in this case, in this case is the glucose. So that activates the concentration receptors in the hypothalamus. This activates your thirst response. It activates your ADH. So you end up drinking more water. Now, you drink more water. If you're really dehydrated, that's a good thing. However, in diabetics, you're not truthfully dehydrated. The, your body thinks you are, but you're not. So when you drink more water, what's happening is you're actually hyperhydrating yourself. You're, you're in a hyperpressure state. Your blood pressure may have, may in fact increase because again, your intravascular space is full of glucose and full of water. Now, when this goes to your kidney, what happens? Well, increased flow or pressure to the kidney, to the glomerulus, increases the filtration rate. Does that make sense? Pushing more water through the sieve so more water flows into the sieve and gets filtered. Furthermore, what happens in diabetes is that, and it's not necessarily one mechanism that causes it, but you have constriction of the efferent arterial. So think about this. You have more flow going into the sieve. The outflow of the sieve is getting constricted, so this increases the filtration even more. Furthermore, the afferent arterial is dilated. And I'll spend some time talking about how that works because it's fascinating. If you go back to consider that sodium and glucose are often are often reabsorbed together, right? That through the SGLT receptor. And I'm talking about this because one of the drugs we use to decrease kidney problems in diabetics is the SGLT receptor inhibitors. But yeah, you have the HLT receptor in the proximal column of the tubule. When there's glucose there, it gets absorbed. So does sodium. So both sodium and glucose will get absorbed. So the more glucose you have in your urine, the more sodium will get reabsorbed as well. If there's less sodium in your urine, this activates what we call the tube 
bulloglomerular feedback in the distal convoluted tubule. Again, the macular densa there, specific part of these are the cells that will they will look into the sodium concentration. Really, it's the chlorine concentration, but sodium and chlorine come together. So the chlorine concentration into that into the urine filtrate at the, the distal convoluted tubule. If that concentration goes down, which it will, because there's more glucose in the urine, causing more sodium to be reabsorbed, goes down, you activate the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism, which is releases nitric oxide into the afro and dilates it. So, again, to summarize, three things are happening. You have your sieve, there's more flow going to the sieve because of the hyperpressure state. The outflow of the sieve is constricted, and the inflow, which is the afro is dilated. So the filtration rate will increase significantly. And that's what we classically may see in uh, the beginning stages of diabetic kidney disease is something called glomerular hypofiltration. It's paradoxical because theoretically it should be happening. Your kidney function should be going down, but it may go up initially. So you have initial increase in the GFR, all right, which can be seen with creatinine testing. The second thing that happens classically is that this increased flow into the nef nephron actually damages the membrane. Now remember, proteins are, are not filtered into the urine. You don't get filtration. Why? Because they're large, most of them, and because of their charge. The sieve prevents the proteins from going into the urine because of their size and because of their charge. But when you have increased pressure going into the sieve, the sieve itself starts stretching out. And that's when you start getting leakage of proteins. For some reason, the, f the, the first protein we see leakage of is albumin. And that's the one we try to detect when we're testing for diabetic kidney disease. And so that's stage two. Stage two is you get leakage of the proteins. Stage three is you, you start getting damage to the kidney. The, the, the kidney is becoming damaged. And why is that happening? Again, well, you're damaging the glomerulus because of the extra pressure. But furthermore, the afro-arterial is the blood supply to the kidney tissue. So if your afro-arterial is constricted, you're actually constricting the blood supply to the kidney as well. Hence, you can get ischemic damage to the kidney and further, further loss of kidney function. So the classic way it's supposed to happen, the better kidney disease, is that initially your GFR goes up, then you start leaking protein, then your GFR goes down, you start leaking more protein as the kidney function increases. What's interesting, however, is that's not what always happens. If you look at studies of disease progression in diabetics, in some cases, you may have increased GFR. Some cases, you may not. In some cases, your GFR will decrease, but it can come back up again. In some cases, you may be leaking protein for a while, but then you may stop. So there seems to be some plasticity that's happening uh, with this disease. It's not classically, you know, increased GFR, increased protein, decreased GFR. It seems to go up and down. And that's why it's important to test diabetics on a regular basis. Because if you test for this every three years, well, if it just happens that that year the albumin was not leaking into the urine, uh, then you missed that there's this but there's still disease in the person. The person still has diabetic kidney disease. Well, if you missed it. So testing it every year is more consistent because of the inconsistent 
more, I should say more useful because of the inconsistent nature of disease, this disease progression. Bottom line is you, you have to test for this on a regular basis. And diabetics, up to 40% of diabetics will have chronic kidney disease. It's based on the CDC. So Americans, uh, it's very similar in Canada as well, in the rest of the world. In fact, diabetes, specifically in the developed world, is one of the major causes of dialysis. Not the only cause, but it's one of the major causes. Because it's the fact, what that means is part of your care for diabetics is to screen and to control diabetic kidney disease. And the screening is it's pretty clear. Whether you look at the U.S. guidelines or the Canadian guidelines, you should be doing yearly albumin creatinine ratio tests. So urinary tests that look for albumin in the urine, but also you should be doing yearly glomerular filtration rates because sometimes you will see the GFR change before you see the protein in the urine. So clearly that's what you need to do on a yearly basis. Not every two years, not every three years, not every five years, every year. Because if you can catch the disease sooner, then the pro you can slow the progression. Can't really reverse it, but you can certainly slow the progression and people will have better outcomes. So now that we've talked about how the disease works. Let's talk about how we treat it. If you know how it works, you know how to treat it. So going back to the pathophysiology, problem number one is increased blood sugar causing increased osmolarity. How do you treat that? Well, you control the blood sugar. So if you look at the studies, and this is especially true in type 1 diabetics, more type 1 and type 2, there's, there's better evidence in type 1 and type 2, is we know that if you can target an HbA1c of 7% or less, the chance of diabetic kidney disease decreases significantly. Okay, so control the blood sugar, number one. How you do that is variable. There's many options. Ultimately, you want a medication that also decreases cardiac risk, such as metformin, or the SGLT inhibitors, or the GLP-1 receptor agonists, which um, also have demonstrated cardioprotection. So you do that. Step number two is the hyperpressure state and damage to the kidney want to control the blood pressure. That is ultimately the reason why the blood pressure target for diabetics is 130 over 80 in most, well, in most countries, is because of that, well, it decreases the damage to the heart, but also decreases the damage happening to the kidneys. Obviously, there's less pressure going to the kidneys. The sieve, the nephron, and the tissue is less damaged. So you have your blood pressure target of 130 less than normal, less than your normal population because of that. Thirdly, also related to the controlling the blood pressure is you want to inhibit the RAS, the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Because remember, what's happening, one of the issues that's happening in this disease is the afferent arterial is constricted, decreasing blood flow to the kidney. Well, if you inhibit the RAS, you inhibit the constriction of the afferent arterial to a certain extent. What's great is that, yes, it's, you know, this theoretical idea that inhibiting the RAS will prevent disease progression has been shown to be true with trials. There are many trials that show that adding an ACE inhibitor or an ARB decreases the progression from normal progression from kidney disease in, in people who have specifically who have albumin leakage. Okay. Because again, um, it does not it's, what's important to remember here is that they're great for people with albumin leakage in the urine less they're not there's no actual good evidence however that they work better than other hypertensives hypertensives in people who don't have proteinuria or macro or albumin in the urine because in those people the kidney disease the pathophysiology may be different so you want to dilate the afferent arterial 
you give an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. And finally, let's talk about the SGLT inhibitors, which work two ways, really, in, the, in, this, in this disease. Uh, one way they work is they decrease the glucose. Right? You decrease the glucose load. Okay, there's less sugar, less glucose that's ultimately filtered into the, into the kidney, um, causing less issues there, causing less issues with the hyper-pressure hyper, hyper, uh, state as well. But the other reason why these guys work is, remember I talked about the SGLT inhibitor, uh, sorry, the SGLT co-transporter in the proximal colotubule. Well, these inhibitors will inhibit that transporter, which means that the sodium concentration, hence chloride concentration, in the urine will normalize, meaning that the tubuloglomerular reflex won't be activated, and the afferent urea will not dilate inappropriately. So SGLTs work two ways, uh, in the fact that they decrease the sh blood sugar, the blood glucose, and in fact that they normalize the tubuloglomerular feedback mechanism. And it just, again, it's, it's such a uh, interesting disease to show, to go back to your first principles of, of renal physiology and see how things connect. Now, we don't have all the answers here. I mean, again, I sort of skipped over the why the material is constricting because theoretically if you're hypervolemic you shouldn't be activating the RAS system you shouldn't have constriction of that material so it doesn't all click and we don't necessarily know everything about the progression of disease but hoping that by realizing how the disease works you will never forget how to treat it and if there's new treatments for the disease they'll make sense to you but to summarize that we're calling it diabetic kidney disease not nephropathy nephropathy needs a specific diagnosis it will affect about 37% of diabetics. So you need to screen for it on a yearly basis. And treatment is targeting the blood sugar levels. It's targeting the blood pressure. You want it to be less than 130. Blood sugar is less than 7% HbA1c. It's targeting the renin adjutensin aldosterone system through inhibition with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB because it increases, decreases efferent vasoconstriction and blood pressure and it's also targeting the SGLT co-transporter in the kidney because ultimately it allows for more sugar to be lost into the urine but also normalizes the tubuloglomerular feedback okay so hopefully this was helpful we have another podcast a special one with a special interviewee uh, coming very soon for you very excited but uh, we'll talk again soon <music>